Hello and welcome. Uh, my name is Brad Closa. I'm the program director of the Future Networks Initiative at IEEE. If you're not familiar with IEEE, we are the world's largest technical professional organization dedicated to advancing technology for the benefit of humanity. Before we begin, I'd like to explain the format uh, for this live event. Uh, our panelists will speak for about 30 minutes, and after that, we'll then start to select some questions from the comments section uh, on LinkedIn. Uh, so please feel free to submit any questions you might have for our speakers in the comments field, and, and we'll get to as many of them as we can. Uh, and now we can begin. Uh, this is the last panel in a four-part series that we're doing for LinkedIn Live uh, called 5G Demystified. It's a special collaboration between IEEE Future Networks and IEEE's Educational Activities uh, Department. Uh, the first uh, three sessions uh, are now available to view on demand. Uh, and you can look in the uh, description of this event to see the links to the uh, previous uh, panels. Uh, but today's is called, Will 5G Kill Wi-Fi? Uh, we use Wi-Fi at home because it offers speeds that are better than our LTE phones get. But if 5G uh, earns its promise and, and starts to deliver speeds 10 times better than LTE, will that mean we no longer need Wi-Fi at home? Or will public Wi-Fi become as antiquated as internet cafes? Uh, and where do technologies like CBRS fit into this mix? Uh, IEEE's uh, panel of experts today will discuss uh, and maybe debate uh, this battle for last mile connectivity between technologies, as well as recent advances on how these two technologies uh, may commingle in the future. Uh, so at this time, I'd like to hand it over to David Witkowski, who will lead us through the panel uh, discussion. David is the founder and CEO of Oku Solutions, a professional services company that works at the intersection between local government and the telecommunications industry. Uh, and he's a senior member uh, and the uh, co-chair of IEEE Future Networks' deployment working group. Uh, David, please take it away. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening to everyone. Thanks for being here. Uh, really looking forward to this discussion today. Uh, we've got a great set of panelists who all have uh, very lively opinions on this topic. And I think that it's gonna be a really, uh, I think it's gonna be a really good webinar. So, you know, in the years past, the answer to whether cellular would displace Wi-Fi was obvious. And I think that answer was no. Uh, they each had its place. Cellular technologies like 4G and 5G were for wide area, high mobility networks, not necessarily the fastest data speeds, but uh, something that could be used while you're driving in a car, going down the, the freeway or on a train uh, that supported a wide range of services, including some limited mobile broadband, but also Internet of Things applications. And Wi-Fi, on the other hand, was a wireless net local area networking technology that was primarily used for uh, in homes and businesses, and of course, it had um, it has had a lot of application to say smart home uh, connectivity of things like um, you know smart light bulbs or switches, uh, cameras, etc. And and that was the way things were for many years. Uh, recently, thrown into this mix has been private 4G, private 5G. Uh, that's enabled wireless networks that are owned and operated by non-carrier organizations for their own use. And as each of these technologies has evolved, their feature sets uh, have expanded in such a way that they're beginning to intrude on each other's swim lanes, if you will. Uh, their you know, Wi-Fi networks uh, combined with technologies like Hotspot 2.0 are, are enabling wireless carriers 
to offload traffic to high-performance networks while maintaining security and ease of use. At the same time, the performance of some 5G networks now meets or exceeds what was once only possible on broadband and Wi-Fi, which potentially negates the need for visitor or public Wi-Fi in some locations. And the private 4G, 5G networks use cellular technologies in unlicensed or light, lightly licensed spectrum to support a variety of applications, including mission critical, uh, enhanced security and reliability, um, you know, on-campus networks, and again, they're being used for the IoT. Uh, so as the lines between these technologies are increasingly blurred, I believe that in the next five years, where the landscape for connectivity technologies will be very different than it is today. Um, and at least that's what I think. And so today we're gonna hear from a panel of experts on what they think. My guests today are Dan Warren, who's the Director of Advanced Research, Advanced Network Research at Samsung Research UK, Klaus Hedding, who's the CEO and Chairman at Wi-Fi Now, and Richard Bernhardt, who is a Senior Director for Spectrum and Industry at the Wireless Internet Service Providers Association. I'm gonna allow each of them to introduce themselves I'll start at the top of the list that I just gave. Dan, why don't you say hello to the audience and give us a little background? Thanks, David. Uh, hello, everybody. Yeah, um, so so my background uh, is is kind of, I, I was asked to, to participate in a panel to to kind of be the guardian angel of the 3GPP world of the, the uh, macrocellular wireless industry. Um, my, my background is a little bit more complicated than that, perhaps. Uh, so I am a longtime 3GPP delegate. Um, from past history working for Nortel and Vodafone. I then worked for GSMA for seven years um, where I did all kinds of interesting things like uh, led the definition of voice over LTE, uh, did a lot of work on LTE roaming. Um, but that also led me then into uh, other areas of roaming, including Wi-Fi roaming. So uh, at the GSMA, I did a lot of work uh, in partnership with the WBA as well, um, helping them understand how mobile roaming worked and to bring some of that best practice into the uh, initial stages of what became hotspot uh, 2.0 and, and passpoint um so to, to kind of answer the the headline question and 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 try i'll try and keep it fairly short uh, and i'm going to extend david's uh, analogy of swim lanes right so uh, i think that in the established swim lanes right now wi-fi has a, a very clear place where it swims very nicely in home broadband sitting on the end of a, of a fixed line uh, access network uh, and then distributing connectivity throughout the home for a whole bunch of reasons. And then also when you go out into hotels and into maybe not internet cafes, but just straightforward cafes where you find the Wi-Fi and you, you find somewhere slightly more pleasant to, to work, particularly during the school holidays. Um, and then on the other side, you know, there's macrocellular coverage where um, we sell uh, you know, thousands, tens, millions of shiny devices like this and laptops and tablets and a few IoT devices as well, which connect into um, a, a, a standardized 3GPP defined technology with allocated spectrum and fairly good security, uh, which which has a whole value statement around that. Um, where we're getting to now, though, is is perhaps we're, we're coming out of the swimming pool and going into a, a bit of open water swimming where there aren't such defined lanes, right? So there's there's a whole bunch of new space where um, where it's essentially greenfield. Um, when you move into things like industrial IoT, um, but also where industrial IoT goes outside of a factory or, or outside of a warehouse or outside of a barn and goes out into a field, you have this interplay between um, the use cases 
and the user experiences and the devices which are being which are being implemented against um which means that it's not quite so obvious whether wi-fi or or a cellular network technology is the right solution anymore um and then it comes down to understanding what the enterprise that's deploying in that model actually wants and which technology is is best and so to complete my my kind of long-winded introduction to who i am as well I also spent two years trying to escape telecoms and working at a system integrator where we, um, where, where you find quite quickly that system integrators don't really care what technology it is. It's just about meeting uh, the customer requirements. And they sit in that sweet spot between the, the mobile network operator or the ISP or the connectivity provider of whatever kind and the enterprise. And they clutch things together. You know, they make a solution of whatever component parts make sense at the price point to meet the KPIs that are needed. Um, whatever G, whatever technology, doesn't matter. It just has to do what's required, meet the KPIs, and provide somebody on the end of a phone line to to get shouted at when it goes wrong. That's great. Well, thanks for thanks for going with my swim lane uh, analysis. <laughs> Appreciate that. And so uh, I'm going to move down to Klaus. And so Klaus, uh, why don't you give us an introduction and then uh, maybe quick. some quick comments uh, on, yeah. on my intro. All right, excellent intro, by the way, David. It's great to be here. It's a wonderful topic. And just from your intro, we could probably carry on for four or five hours uh, because there's so much in there already, <laughs> as we also discussed during the dry run. Uh, so just very quickly, my name is Klaus Hedding. I'm the CEO and chairman of Wi-Fi Now. Wi-Fi Now has been, uh, shall we say, the evangelical and marketing arm of a big chunk of the Wi-Fi industry, I guess, now for coming up on eight years. Uh, and we continue to, to do a lot of work uh, uh, with media, with events, and so on, uh, for a lot of different companies, organizations within the Wi-Fi industry, and I'm super, super grateful and happy to be able to do that. Um, just very quickly, I, I think that there is a certain amount of apples and oranges uh, going on always when we start discussing this topic, which is uh, close and dear to my heart and has been for many years, and it always comes up uh, with a new generation or even between generations, right, of, of, uh, of mobile technology. Uh, but there is also a certain overlap, overlapping lanes, if you will, or, um, especially in the enterprise uh, part of enterprise segment, if you like. I think there's a lot of places where the two don't practically speaking, overlap much in terms of what is really out there in the market and, and forecast for the market. Um, but certainly the enterprise side, there, there, there is potential for a bit of competition between the two, which I think, I think is a good thing, actually. Uh, but one killing the other, I don't think is, is really uh, in the cards. But absolutely, let's, let's go a little bit more deeply uh, into all of this, unless I'm sure we will in just a moment. So I'll let uh, Richard introduce himself. Yeah, thanks. So Richard, why don't you uh, introduce and then maybe you want to make some comments on my intro or comments that Dan and Klaus have already made. Sure. Um, I agree 100% with what Dan said. I agree 100% with what Klaus said. I never agree with what David said, so forget that. Um, my name is Richard Bernhardt. I'm the uh, now the senior director and uh, 
head of Spectrum and Industry for the Wireless Internet Service Providers Association. I also sit on a number of different standards organizations, including the Wireless Innovation Forum, which designed the standards for CBRS and is in presently working with the Wi-Fi Alliance on developing <coughs> excuse me, the standards for the new unlicensed 6 gigahertz, at least in the United States, and extending beyond that where harmonization takes place. Um, it's my pleasure to work with all of you. And in terms of the lanes and the use and the conflict, and will one kill the other? Uh, no, uh, they will not kill each other. Um, it is quite simple. There, there is enough space in this ocean, in this swimming pool for, uh, for all of these uses. And quite frankly, the ones that are gonna come in the future and in, I must say not in the very distant future. Um, whether it's starting with 2G and going to 3G and then going to 4G and then going to 5G and then going to NR or SA and NSA, then looking at 6G and 7G and one of my guys at, at our Wispapalooza event started talking about 9G. He said he's the owner of 9G and nobody can stop him. Um, <laughs> On the Wi-Fi side, you know, we have the, the old days of the slow Wi-Fi and everything interfered with everything. And then we started getting into real Wi-Fi where Wi-Fi was sort of the capitalist punch. And by a capitalist punch, I say I'm working on 3.1 to 3.45 with the Congress right now. And there's a hustle and tussle about using licensed and unlicensed and CBRS type techniques. But the answer is Wi-Fi is not your grandfather's Wi-Fi. There's tremendous amount of advancement going on, just as there in the, is in the G's, in Wi-Fi, in both outdoor use and indoor use. And I think as we continue to talk here today, we'll see that there's a, a true competition for each of these things. But honestly, it's the right tool for the right place is really the answer. Um, there is a place for uh, standardized cellular communications approaches, uh, which are the, the G's. Uh, from 3GPP, and I think there's also much place for proprietary air interface deployments, which typically um, operate within the Wi-Fi zones. And you've got new Wi-Fi coming along with Wi-Fi 6 and 6E and future ones after that. So we'll, let's get into it. I think there's some grounds for some disagreement, and there's some grounds where we can be very copacetic. Thanks, everybody, for your comments. Uh, so I uh, definitely agree that the the right solution is the one that's right for the application. It's a, it's always, and when I deal with local governments, um, I'm often you know asked this question like, well, why isn't there just one wireless technology that everyone should use and we just standardize on it? You'd say because an inner city is very different than a rural um, area where you have people whose properties are separated by a quarter mile, Right, so so there's there's no one solution, and there will be solutions. Now the question is is how do they, if you will, borrow market share from each other or or intrude upon each other's swim lanes to to continue to drive that metaphor into the ground, so um, or into the water as the case may be. So um, so let's talk a little bit about. So in, I mean, let's go back to the basic premise, which is. Um, in order for 5G to intrude on the swim lane of Wi-Fi or, or for it to remain uh, a dominant you know, technology, uh, it, it needs to be, I think, a little bit more than it is today. I mean, and I think we can all admit that 5G has, has rolled out. Um, I get faster speeds on my phone, which are great. Um, faster handset speeds were not necessarily 
a thing that the market was screaming for, although in some cases more capacity of the network was something that they were screaming for. So we have to we have to separate out speeds versus capacity because if if a if a 4G LTE site can only you know carry 200 resource blocks, then you you have an issue where you're covering large populations that the network will fail, um, or at least it will slow down. So, so from that perspective, I think 5G is, has, has already shown some value. Um, it has not taken off, I think, in ways that we had hoped, but I also believe that that has to do more with the fact that the cores are still 4G cores and that we haven't really moved to standalone as quickly as, as we would have liked. So I'm gonna challenge Dan to comment on that. And where do you, where do you and where do 3GBP see the, the, the timeline for getting 5G to where it needs to be to meet the promises that were made early on? Oh, well, there's a question to ask me. I mean, um, <laughs> so, uh, webinar by itself, right? Well, I mean, yeah. and, and part of the problem is that, uh, I mean, I, I have the comments open on the, on the right-hand side of my screen here, and I can, I can see that uh, we have Dean Bubbly listening in, yeah. and, and, and Dean, Dean knows that I have in the past been quite an active 5G skeptic. Mm. Um, like right at the beginning of 5G, when I was still at GSMA, I, I wrote a white paper, which which uh, kind of said that all these things that we're promising are really tough to do. And, and they're not tough technically, they're tough economically, they're tough to justify for an operator. Right. So um, at that stage, which was, gosh, uh, eight years ago now, um, I, I kind of made a statement that we'd see 5G, 5G networks within about five years, which was about right, uh, 2019 kind of time frame. Uh, one or two may have popped up slightly before that. Um, but I said that for, for sort of the first deployments and for quite some time afterwards, it was going to be mostly about consumer devices. Um, and consumer devices sell, right? It's a nice, comfortable business model for mobile operators. They, they know how to sell subscriptions to individuals, sometimes to, to enterprises, but really just as a, as a consolidated large number of consumer subscriptions. It's more challenging when you try and sell a service which has a very specific KPI set against it, um, uh, uh, some penalties built into the contract when things go wrong. So um, kind of a, a, about eight years ago, I was using the analogy that if, if something goes wrong with my phone right now, then I do one of two things. I either try and find Wi-Fi if I'm using cellular, or I lean out the window or I move and I press the green button again or I press connect again and I, and I try and make the connection work better than it did in the first place. That doesn't really cut the mustard when it's kind of self-driving cars or perish a thought remote surgery, right? If it's remote surgery, you, you don't want to reboot in the middle of an operation. So it, it's that, that whole kind of set of promises that you're talking about in terms of where 5G was pitched seven, eight years ago were, were really challenging from the perspective, not only of um, what they said about what the technical goals ought to be in terms of bandwidth and latency and particularly reliability and to a certain extent coverage as well, but also they are really challenging from the from the perspective of the business conditions that you're putting yourself in because it isn't B2C contracts anymore. It's it's B2B contracts where the guy sitting on the other side of the table that you're negotiating with is probably backed by quite a big legal team and has got a bunch of people who are going to ring you up and sue you if, if there's significant loss in, in terms of revenue or, or, or even worse, um, which you have liability for when the service doesn't work. So there's this is kind of 
odd situation which has developed now where there's there's a lot of standards around things like network slicing around the support of different quality of service metrics and, and kpis and kqis um but it's all sitting there relatively nascent because the the hump which has got to be got over is the 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 i guess the um the expectation in the operator side that they can actually deliver a service which is going to have all of these capabilities within it and it's not going to lead them into some really bad reputational or, or liability issues um and it, it's just that kind of watershed moment when somebody gets it right and then suddenly the floodgates open and and everybody will step in um but uh, but on the flip side to that i think that's kind of true for anything that we go down in that go down into this, this line you know a lot of uh whether it regardless of what the technology is even if, if it's fixed if something goes wrong there's liability associated with it if it's in industrial iot <laughs> the only thing with fixed is that it's a physical wire but but people pull plugs out people trip over wires on the floor and one of the things about having a wireless connection is that you don't have all of that kind of uh, accidental breakage you you just have wireless which is got its own challenges I, I think i think the the key thing that you said well besides the fact that you said you're a 5g skeptic but your twitter your twitter bio says you're a 5g realist so well that's that's the same thing i think is it okay all right <laughs> maybe maybe um I suppose it depends upon your perspective, but yeah. but I think the key point that you made that I, I totally agree with is previous generations of cellular have been largely a business to consumer, right? Yeah. We see an ad on TV, I want my new phone, I want it to do better things than my old phone, so I go buy the new phone to get the to get the G that does that. Now 5G is a is a business to business play, and and carriers, marketing departments, sales departments aren't necessarily there yet they need to change and if you've been selling to consumers for many years and now you have to sell to another company to your point you have legal issues you have contract negotiation you have performance uh you have performance issues um service uh, service quality issues and that you not not issues but you have things that you need to, to promise you need to promise to deliver um, and so I think that's really one of the things that will have to change in order for, for 5G to fully realize the, the prediction uh, for edge computing and the IoT and such like that, because you're not really selling a whole lot of IoT to consumers. Maybe you are a little bit, but really the IoT probably comes in in like a city, right? As, yeah. as, right? So so that that involves a certain uh, contract eligibility uh, obligation. Uh, let, let me shift to Klaus. So, it, you and I have, have had many conversations over the years and we're friends and we, we've gone to dinner and we have these arguments, uh, friendly arguments at dinner. And, and I and I tell you that, that um, you know, Wi-Fi is never going to be a mobile technology because it was never designed to be a mobile technology. It's a tetherless technology. It's to, to Dan's point, it, it prevents you from tripping over the wires. So now you but now we have Wi-Fi 6E coming down the line. We have future generations. Where do you see from your perspective as an as a Wi-Fi evangelist, mm. Wi-Fi evolving into doing things that cellular traditionally would would have done, and why, and to be to, to be more specific, Wi-Fi did not do. Uh, it's a super good question, David, and and uh, I, I think I will address that. Let me just comment on one thing, and the remote surgery story is has been brought up so many times, and I just do not understand how anybody would want to do that unless the other option was death. Okay, I just want to put that out there. So, 
Well, and, and to be fair, it may, and to be fair, it may be that it's a choice between that or nothing, right? Yeah, so right. Let's, let's only in fair. that case, in my right. view. But anyway, maybe, maybe there's a possible story I don't know about. But I know that that has been done for the for so many times. Anyway, let let me let me give you my view on on whether there are areas where Wi-Fi might encroach on sort of the mobile domain. And the general answer is that we used to think that we, we used to be. Uh, you know, if we if I go back you know, seven, eight years or so. The offload story was a big one. We thought we would be able to disrupt parts of the mobile industry with uh, offload scenarios, basically based on this idea that by far most of traffic on mobile phones runs over Wi-Fi anyway. And even it, it does probably even more so today, but at the time it was actually uh, stunning to see how quickly Wi-Fi grabbed uh, data traffic share from, from the mobile industry essentially. And and that was not in any controlled sort of way. So we kind of thought we could disrupt this by actually turning this into a business uh, and doing it automatically and so forth and seamlessly, as we said, and all of that. I mean, that story has continued to evolve, except it hasn't really been structured in any way. So, of course, we still have the situation where as soon as you're indoors, your phone will run on a Wi-Fi network, usually, not always, of course, but the ones that you have access to in the home and the enterprise and so on. And, I, I don't have any very recent numbers, but I wouldn't be surprised if the proportion of data traffic running on phones uh, over Wi-Fi is still increasing over the mobile side. But I don't, as I said, I don't have the link. Um, so, so I, I think in the meantime, over the past many years, we've kind of come to realize that's sort of an organic thing, uh, and that will continue to happen, uh, especially as we get better and better Wi-Fi networks. So we will take chunk more and more chunks of uh, data out of the mobile story, especially deep indoors and so on. I think that that is only, you know, is bound to happen. Also, because we've got better standards now, we've got more spectrum, right? So, and, and you know, we're now talking about gigabit speeds, multiple gigabit speeds on uh, certainly on the Wi-Fi 6E and the Wi-Fi 7 standards, right? And those are now coming also, by the way, on, of course, on Samsung devices as well, right? Uh, so so uh, we have been, uh, you know, I haven't plotted this out, but we have been, generally speaking, significantly ahead in real life performance, especially in the home and the enterprise, right, uh, of, of cellular networks in terms of speeds. And we can discuss quality, of course, has always been an issue. We're still working on that. Coverage has always been an issue and so on. But... Um, the let me let me put it this way the high-end home today uh sir if you've done it correctly with the right mesh systems and so on and you're up to date on your wi-fi standards and all of that you will get multiple gigabits uh to your home uh, especially of course if you've got fiber coming into your home and that is very very difficult for anything mobile coming from the outside to compete with right so 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 that's the stronghold the other stronghold of course is enterprise and what I'm when I'm talking about enterprise, I'm talking about the broad enterprise ecosystem, if you will. And by far the biggest chunk, as far as I know, is corporate and enterprise and, and hospitality and, and MDUs now is also a big thing and so forth. Um, so, so the answer to you is I think we had a little bit of a pipe dream way back where we thought we could disrupt things with Wi-Fi. Um, it, it sort of is still going on, but there's nobody's really disrupting anything, right? I mean, we still have uh, 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 incredible amounts of Wi-Fi traffic on smartphones and all kinds of devices, right? Obviously, that, that support that and, and, and mobile devices. 
Um, but we're not threat. I don't think we're threatening the mobile industry, uh, at least um, because we don't have, we will never have the kind of wide area coverage that mobile does. And therefore there was always, always be a role for it. You could argue that the whole, you could argue that the whole sense of what's going on in tech, especially over the past three years, has moved in such a way that we're right now maybe more concerned about having the right bandwidth, wireless Wi-Fi bandwidth in the home than we are about being connected when we're on the street because we spend so much time at home or we spent so much time at home, right? So in that sense, in that sense, I also think that that has, I don't know what the statistics are. I saw some statistics of, you know, uh, early during, you know, the past three years of, you know, some uh, mobile traffic dropping off a cliff and so on. I, I don't think though that that's necessarily the case. I think there has been a huge surge of course in home traffic, uh, whether sure. the mobile traffic has also uh, surged at the same time. I'm not sure what the statistics are, but certainly the importance of having great Wi-Fi at home has, has increased. And I don't know that the importance of having great mobile networks, mobile network service has necessarily increased in the same way. So. So, but is is this sort of a direct monetary threat? And are we I, not really, um, as I see it? Does that make sense? No, no. I mean, it's it's uh, the the way you describe it. I think is is I, I I'm I'm going to presume that most people would agree with this. So if you think yeah. in my mind, you think you look at the how Wi-Fi and and cellular integrate. Uh, you know, think of a jar of marbles. Right? There's a bunch of empty space. Uh, you know, the marbles are mobile networks. Wi-Fi is the sand that fills in the spaces around, and you can pack that jar full, right? You can get full coverage by adding um, sand in between the marbles, and Wi-Fi right. is is that. So, yeah. but so Richard Bar Richard Bernhardt, your your WISPA, you implement networks, or at least you're involved with people who implement networks. You see this from the practicality perspective. Um, Dan talked about meeting customer requirements from your perspective at, at WISPA. Uh, why don't you introduce yourself, uh, and then um, let's uh, let's hear from you as to what you think about what's been said and, and your opinions. Yeah. Um, again, I'm Richard Bernhardt. I'm the the senior director for uh, Spectrum and Industry for the Wireless Internet Service Providers Association. Mm -hmm. We have about a thousand members, uh, made up of um, fixed wireless and even non-fixed wireless ISPs. Um, and the suppliers and service providers to the industry. Um, I don't think two WISPs look the same. Uh, you know, you you put you you gather at our two trade uh, trade meetings each year, and compare stories. And while there are links and lines that are similar, uh, pretty much everything about what they do it has a unique aspect to it. So some are delivering in really rugged, mountainous territory. Others are delivering signals to flat desert areas and others are delivering in some mix thereof of many, many different types of circumstances. They go from the very dense New York City, Los Angeles, Washington, DC density type of areas to um, cities like uh, where I have a cabin up in, in rural Oregon where there's 200 houses in the entire area and they're miles apart from one another in the mountains. And delivering a signal isn't the same to each of those. It's not the same for mobile and it's not the same for fixed. Um, so you, you have to be able to blend and use the right tools in order to deliver the signal and the service that they need. 
I've now heard both Dan and Klaus use that that dreaded term gig. Gig <laughs> makes me gag. Gig makes me gag because if you look at the statistics across the United States of actual usage, both upload and download, and even especially download when you've got all those kids at home watching Netflix and playing games, doesn't come anywhere as close to a gigabit per second or, or a gigabit throughput. And on the upload, it's uh, an even, even smaller number. Um, when the federal government FCC had its standards at 25.3 and thought that they were being outrageously future-proof by creating 25.3, they weren't that far off from where we are today. Yeah, there are spikes and ups and downs and usages um, in residences that go higher than that. We certainly want to point at the future, not at the past. But when we're talking five gigs and six gigs in, we're talking about putting a Ferrari on a dirt trail up the middle of the Sierra Mountains. It makes no sense. You're not driving that car there, and it's never going to be driven there. Um, but technology will advance, and there will be needs for these things, and they certainly um, certainly so will the types of methods that we use in radio air interfaces and in waveforms and in noise reduction and in latency and all of those things that you hear that are thrown around such that you can do it if you need to do it and you can contract for it. But on the average, if you're looking at a residence or a multifamily dwelling or a business or a retail outlet or a hospitality location, they're not using anywhere near those kinds of throughput. Um, The other thing is, is that the technologies are advancing as we're advancing. So you've got carrier aggregation in 3GPP, which allows you to pull together channels. And in those channels, you can have a wider channel and therefore provide more as you need it. The same thing is also happening on Wi-Fi. But, but in looking at these two, first off, they're not the only two. Um, there's CBRS uh, in the, that's coming up. That's a new direction in uh, in shared spectrum use. That is neither Wi-Fi nor 3GPP. It's both. It's a technology neutral uh, band. It's 150 megahertz of spectrum that has both licensed and unlicensed or, or licensed by rule use. Um, a 3GPP operator operating in NA, NR, uh, or uh, or even standalone is is able to uh, operate in in CBRS, but they're also able to create a network which terminates in Wi-Fi just fine. So I'm not sure an either or is the answer, especially right now. I don't think we have to be streaming for gigs for you know a farms farm in Iowa or a residence in California. Um, I think those kind of services have their very definite need, uh, perhaps in in precision agriculture, uh, where you're monitoring wide fields or security or surveillance or precision surgery, which I agree with Klaus. I'm not particularly looking forward to having those things done. Um, But as a general fact, uh, it gets back to having the right tools. And I'm really hoping that we don't uh, try to make one uh, direction the only direction because no competition or reduction in competition, even in standards and even in in, uh, wireless types, uh, shuts down the avenue for R&D, shuts down the need for moving forward. And the more we have that pressure around us, the better off we are. Thank you. I I definitely agree with, I definitely agree with the comments, especially about the, the whole, you know, sort of let's not pick winners. Uh, I mean, I've been watching the, and, and you mentioned CBRS, which of course is a U.S. standard, 
Um, but but throughout the, I imagine that at some point around the world, we're gonna we're gonna start to see CBRS-like implementations. Maybe Dan, you're aware of some uh, non-US uh, implementations of something similar to CBRS. Um, but I I was rather I was disconcerted in the United States because there was a proceeding um, at the Federal Communications Commission that that I had been working on some CBRS networks we had deployed. Um, and we were we filed comments with the Federal Communications Commission, um, arguing against this notion of what you know they wanted the standard to be 100 megahertz up and down. To your point, right? You know, very few people used that much bandwidth, at least individually. Um, but in a family of four, perhaps 100 makes sense. Um, but I don't know that 100 megahertz symmetrical makes sense. When we filed our comments, they were very specific, like, nope, we're not going that way. Um, and, and I think the challenge was is that you know there was a sort of notion that fiber would be would be the solution to everything, and it felt like the United States government was picking winners in that regard. And, and I think thankfully they have backed off on that position. Um, and in fact, there was just an article by Jock Given in the um, Journal of Information Policy um, that I saw yesterday that was talking about um, you know wireless ISP wireless broadband. Uh, being being a solution and and I think you're right that it in some locations rural for example it may be that point to multipoint or point to point links and wireless are the only way to do connections um having worked recently with a a local wireless ISP um putting together a, a proposal uh, that that was the argument that they made was it's simply faster and my understanding is, is that in Northern Europe, they're moving away from fiber for economic reasons. They're moving towards wireless links because they're, they're simply a better use of, of government funds. Um, and, and so I think we, we all agree that there are, that the solutions will be um, what they need to be to solve the problem. And it's nice to have a toolbox of technologies. Uh, and so from that perspective then, I think some of the other, some of the other one of the one of the things I wanted to talk about, um, real quickly was this kind of notion of peer deployed networks, um, and and we probably all remember the old days of you know like open Wi-Fi. Remember the days when it was this there was this notion that everyone was going to open up their Wi-Fi access point. We were all just going to use each other's Wi-Fi. Um, of course, without without encryption, that was a really bad idea, right? But in the early days of of people getting together in their apartment complexes and all all agreeing to have you know like the same SSID, maybe that would work. Um, but then, like for example, Comcast in the United States, the cable provider, does have their Xfinity Mobile, which is a hotspot 2.0 based technology, and and I I admit to having a fascination with hotspot 2.0 because I. I think that it it solves a lot of the solves a lot of the things about Wi-Fi that make me upset, which is whenever I want to use Wi-Fi, I have to I have to go on, I have to sign in, I have to click that little you know EULA, I have to I have to agree to their terms, and and I think we can all agree that captive portals suck, right? So Hotspot 2.0 does not require that, and and that's what effectively Comcast has done is is they've created a network of access points which people use in their homes and so it's not peer deployed but it sort of is in a way and then of course helium had tried to do like sort of 
self-deployed five, you know, they talked about what they called 5G, which was actually not 5G, which was CBRS. Um, and then there was that company, Ucama, which as I understand was a former Facebook um, employee who was putting together this notion that we would all deploy CBRS access points at our homes and we would participate in some sort of roaming agreement. And, and maybe there was some crypto coin that we would earn by carrying traffic for each other, which is similar to a certain extent to how Hotspot 2.0 works, right? If a carrier offloads onto my Hotspot 2.0 network, which I run in, in downtown San Jose, California, um, you know, we we get um, we get a, a small token payment for that for carrying that traffic, and and the user does not know that they have logged in to that network. It just simply happens. Um, you know, if if you if on the Samsung phone, not to pick on Dan, but if on my Samsung phone I click open roaming and I and I activate that switch, I opt in. Then if there's an open roaming, I would attach to it. Orion, which is Google's product is sim based it just it just happens you don't have to take any action as a user and and i think that's really powerful so just a real quick round around the around the um the table here what what are your thoughts about these sort of zero effort attach networks in in hotspot 2.0 what, what do you think and i'm gonna start with dan yeah i mean um i think i think they're great when they work right so uh, going back to to my time at GSMA, we had um, we, we did the work with the WBA. We put Passpoint on top of the Wi-Fi at Mobile World Congress. Uh, I think the first year we ran that trial, we had nine people attached to it, um, and and it was available to eleven separate mobile operators. So you could do SIM-based authentication um, from. Uh, I'm not going to name names about which mobile operators they were, but they were a fairly diverse spread globally as well. Uh, and yeah, I think we had nine people use it, uh, and I certainly tried to, uh, and it didn't work for me. Mm -hmm. um, I think probably more successful, um, you know, if you're a BT uh, broadband customer in the UK, fixed line broadband customer, you can opt into what what is now the the BT broadband option, but what what was used to be Fon. Um, so BT bought Fon a while back, um, but it means that. If I am prepared to open up my BT hotspot for people who want to sit outside of my driveway to attach to my BT Wi-Fi, then I can attach to anybody else's as well. Um, and, and that has various kind of niche angles to it, but it still works quite nicely. You know, and when, when you go somewhere where there's a BT Wi-Fi hotspot and you just attach because you're a BT customer, that's quite a nice little perk to have as a, as a fixed line customer. Um, the bit which I find interesting is where you have the same operator operating Wi-Fi and mobile, and they don't necessarily integrate the two. And I've never entirely worked out why you wouldn't do that as a as a kind of a customer stickiness option. Yeah. Um, some do, but not all of them. Um, and then you you know whether you do it through any means of uh, authentication, whether it's wi uh, whether it's SIM based, whether it's app based, however you go about doing it, it's, it's down to you. But yeah, I think well, I think we'll see more of it. Uh, it it just seems to to kind of help with that customer adhesion besides anything else it, it it's a so my experience on the hotspot 2.0 has been has been very different we have a site that is in a very dense part of downtown san jose um it's it's probably the the busiest it would you know if there was a center of downtown san jose this we would be basically adjacent to it in the office where we are um you know in in one hour last friday which was during the lunch hour um, i offloaded 221 connections onto my wi-fi network and, and those were all cellular offload. Um, and then the previous hour, 
did the same. So it, it basically between the hours of about 11 to 1, I offloaded 442 connections, um, and which is and now that some of those may have been persistent across those hours. But the point is, is that we're servicing a large number of people. Um, Klaus, what are your thoughts on the hotspot? Yeah. David, by the way, I have to say, I'm totally impressed with your project. We talked about this yesterday and you have to come on my show to talk about that because I don't, I did not know that was going on. And I, I, I think that's impressive. Yeah. My, um, my white, my white paper is uh, in draft right now, but I will have a white paper and I want to have that published before I go on your show, but yes. No, 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 no absolutely. But we'll do it. Uh, I think it's super, super interesting. Your specific case uh, in general, one of the big reasons I believe why, even though it's possible to do this, uh, handoff to uh, Wi-Fi networks and back with Passpoint or with anything really, and there's various ways of doing it, um, is the, the reason why a lot of mobile operators didn't like that, and this is possibly still the case, is that you could not control exactly when this happens and what network you're handing over to and what you're handing back to, because there is no visibility between the networks, generally speaking, unless you have something like a connection manager and you do other things, right? So the, the quality, you know, the, 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 the quality might be uh, seriously damaged if, uh, if you do that too much and, and, and you might get a terrible result. So I think this is one of the reasons why it didn't uh, take off. And it's probably still also still a reason why it, 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 a lot of operators probably don't like it. Um, so, so that said, I mean, the, the Passpoint standard, I think, it ticks all the boxes. I always, but I always also have believed that the, the the ecosystem involvement for it has been the necessary ecosystem involvement for for getting this really uh, to a point where everything works beautifully has possibly been too much. So there are still some good cases out there, and and where this works. Uh, unfortunately, there's also some uh, terrible cases, right, uh, that where it doesn't work and, and that doesn't do anything for us right. uh, as an industry. Um, so, you know, th that that's basically my view on it. It's also been a, a long time coming, right, this project. And, and we want to support it, of course, also from a Wi-Fi now point of view, because it does provide certain benefits. Let me just make this comment, right, regarding captive portals. Captive portals are hated and loved depending on who you speak to, right? So there, so a lot of to, I would love to meet people that love captive portals. Well, a lot of enterprises want them. They don't necessarily want, for example, in the hospitality business, it's a way of communicating with uh, with guests uh, other than at the front desk, right? And they want people to enter through the captive portal because they can do certain things in connection with that building the relationship there. They just you know have people uh, you know lock onto the network and start using it, that opportunity is lost. So, but there are good ways and bad ways of doing it. I mean, the, the horrible thing is that when you get to some airport and you have to fill out four forms and you have to do all kinds of things, just, I, I was just, you know, bless them in, in Brazil. And it's not because Brazil is particularly bad, but I didn't have a roaming agreement or I had one, but it, it was so expensive. I didn't want to use it. So I was going with the Wi-Fi, and it was very difficult to get on these Wi-Fi, public Wi-Fi networks because you have to register for all this stuff and then, and, and so on. Which is typical in a lot of places, and this is not a great way to, you know, to, to, to bring people online with free Wi-Fi. Uh, but there are other are other cases where I think it's fairly slick, and and you can get through the, uh, you know, user journey, whatever is required to get to your free Wi-Fi reasonably easily. But uh, I, you could, many would probably argue those are not so common. They, they should be, uh, and there are good ways of doing. 
Um, so, so there are various needs that are, that are being met by using mobile, uh, sorry, capture photos or not. So we also have to remember that. And, and, and I think that's a big part of the story here. Richard, you want to uh, offer some comments here? We, we've got about 13 minutes before we're going to close, and, and we want, probably want to do a Q&A, uh, at least answer one of the questions from the audience. So uh, your thoughts on offload and, uh, and sort of gray area? Yeah, well, all of this is sort of heading towards the, the concept of sharing. You know, it's a little different viewpoint of sharing, but it's really the, the concept of sharing. You, you have so much... Um, available spectrum and available means of communicating and it's limited it, it if, if it's reserved or not used then you have space where it's not available um, and so whether whether it's going towards a neutral host approach to things where multiple pro, uh, providers can provide through the same equipment and perhaps the user can capture or use um, whatever equipment and whatever provider is available at that location, um, that gives a greater amount of diversity. Um, and it, in, in CBRS, neutral host is, uh, is one of those things that is a feature and a function that can happen. Um, it's, it's in its nascent state, but there are still um, experimental uh, uses out there so that uh, you can demonstrate that you can have uh, four different carriers or four different providers come in, utilize the same equipment and go across maybe a shopping center and it's flawless for that. And doing it in a stadium, it's flawless for that. Um, the, the, the reason that you, the captive control, the, the captive portals um, are popular in places like hotels and stadiums and so forth is very simple. Advertising dollars and uh, control of who uses the system um, have, have always traditionally been the reason why they want to do that. You control your audience, you control the income flow, you control who uses what Wi-Fi. There's actually some laws that prohibit that in some areas. And if you're blocking somebody else and in favor of your network, uh, that is problematic. So I think um, looking at this more from a global perspective, um, you know, the more that we're able to share the, the, the spectrum and even, even share the technologies um, and that the technologies uh, interoperate better together and coexist better, uh, the more sharing that you're really doing with a limited resource. So I'm in favor of it as long as uh, what Dan said is true. It has to work um, and it has to work right and, and it has to work consistently and it has to not disturb other uh, forms of communication that are out there. So that's my only limitation on that is that um, open generally means that there's uh, some characteristics about it that we don't know, and we need to make sure that they're not interfering with something else that's necessary. Very good. Thank you all. Um, I'm going to uh, turn to some comments. So I'm just going to answer them as, as they've been um, placed into the comment stream here, and I'm just going to answer these out verbally. So um, in no particular order, I'm going to answer Dan Grossman's comment, which is, um, can someone sum up the arguments for the proposition that 5G will kill Wi-Fi? And, and I think I would argue that nobody on this, you know, we we, we posed this as a question because it was an interesting question, but I don't think we've come to any conclusions that 5G is going to kill Wi-Fi. Can, um, I, can I just make a point of a, maybe yeah, a place where it will, um, but it's a, it's, a, it's a kind of a, well, it's not that specialist, I guess. I mean, the, the kind of place where it could is places where, the infrastructure to put Wi-Fi in place 
in homes or in enterprises doesn't already exist. And, and uh -huh. so you're looking more at developing markets. And, and then if you get a mobile operator with a disruptive deployment model, and, and uh, yeah, I'm from Samsung, so I'm not just a handsets guy, I'm a networks guy as well. And I'm thinking more about Geo in India. We've gone out with a really low, you know, really cheap, flat, fixed rate price for unlimited data. Uh, and have and have eaten up an awful lot of the the kind of urban suburban market um, for in home because if it's that cheap and it's delivering a, initially 4G speeds admittedly, but if it's 4G or nothing, then 4G wins, you know. And then once you've got that foothold, and if the service delivers, it's very difficult for an alternative technology to come back in. Right. So I think the reason why we don't see in most of the markets, you know, we're in a very privileged position that we're sitting in, in developed markets um, and Wi-Fi has become prevalent in homes ahead of any kind of mobile cellular technology. And, and there's no real likelihood of that status quo being broken. If that status quo doesn't exist in the first place, it, it all comes down to first mover advantage. And that kind of comes back to my first point around industrial IoT. Whoever gets the foothold first in either an individual business or a sector or has that specific niche capability, which is essential for those enterprise customers, whether that's security, whether that's just having a specific spectrum allocation, which is dedicated to you, whatever that value is, whoever can fulfill the requirement which is needed by the enterprise gets the foothold and they win. And in some cases, that may be that 5G beats Wi-Fi. It doesn't kill it in places where Wi-Fi already exists, but it certainly sounds the opportunity of, of getting there first or getting there with something different and as a result, becoming the preeminent technological deployment. Can I comment, David, just uh, one deployment. minute? Of course, yeah. Yeah, so, so generally speaking, the issue with that is you especially for emerging markets, the governing factor is probably in the end going to be the end user device. And, and Wafa has always had the benefit of being able to uh, provide very low cost end user devices that most of them, I mean, the super low cost ones, of course, have, are, are not mobile it's phones. Basically, I mean, on a, plat on a platform semiconductor, Wi-Fi is basically free because it comes with right. the processor right. that you're buying anyway, right? It's very, very difficult to beat that, right? Uh, that's right. the first thing. And, and the second thing in terms of the enterprise, I agree with Dan that there is a real case for private 5G, but I, my own understanding of it, and I'm not an industry uh, expert in that sense, but my own understanding of it, we're talking about the top maybe 5% of the overall enterprise connectivity market. Uh, and, and that's fine. And it's good to have competition there. And I'm sure the Wi-Fi vendors uh, in the world are happy to, to do even better to, to, you know, to, to work with or against you guys, as the case might be, right? Richard, do you have uh, any comments on whether or yeah, not we, we I'm not a, I'm not a big believer in first mover lands the whale and the whale stays. Um, I, I think if we look at fax machines and we look at DSL and we look at, you know, a hundred different technology, uh, pager, pagers and whatnot, they all had first mover advantage. They all moved in. They all had the real estate. I look at a multifamily dwelling today that has pre-wired stuff in it. That doesn't stop the next technology from moving in and doing its thing and making it competitive. It may delay it for a period of time, but the honest fact is technology moves forward and it does things that get around those things that we think are absolutely impossible to get over. Um, I, I, I think the future is not known. I don't think I, I hate that concept future proof, especially in wireless and telephony, because I don't think anyone has that crystal ball. 
And I, I think that the benefit of having different kinds of technologies and different kinds of, of standards um, is that it, it breeds the ability to do one against the other. Look what the look look what the, the cable industry does with the MSO industry. Look what the MSO industry is now doing with the with the uh, LEO industry and the you know low orbital satellites. Look what's happening with uh, you know fiber that we couldn't do ten years ago. It's really the hybrid of these things and 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 what will come next. So there. I, I, that's just my thinking is that, sure. that you're not ending up with, uh, with one killing the other. Um, eventually you may have something which is technologically wiped out and replaced with something else, but that won't stop another technology from being present. I, I, I think just let me close with a comment before I hand it back to Brad. First mover advantage exists in environments where the first mover is protected by perhaps a regulatory situation. For example, the United States government saying that they won't fund overbuild because something already exists. And so you say, well, no, you know, you have your you have your 10-1 ADSL 2 plus connection. We're not going to build anything else because you already have a connection. But then they define the standard above that. Now, well, now you have the opportunity to to fix it. But in a, in a sense, I think these government regulatory paradigms that that are restrictive of what they consider to be overbuild do provide the first mover an advantage because if you can get in there with something at least for a period of time you're protected from from having your stuff displaced and, and that's his final comment now brad is here to uh, he's gonna he's you know this is remember we talked about the shepherd's crook right <laughs> Brad, Brad is it's like the old vaudeville days where the hook has now come out and he has hooked it around my neck and he's going to tell me that we are three minutes away and we're going to finish. I just want 20 seconds if I may. Brad, do you want to give Klaus 20 seconds? You're, this is, all right, go ahead. Of course I do. Yeah, okay, thank you. Uh, just one final comment. Uh, in April of 2020, the FCC gave the world the biggest spectrum gift, I think, in the history of the world, right? And that was 1,200 megahertz of, of free unlicensed spectrum. And I think for the next 10 or 15 years, that is going to be at the core of what we're going to see in terms of evolution of wireless connectivity. It is just something incredible. And if you told me a year before that, that that was going to happen, I said, no way that is ever going to happen. But it did happen, and it's an incredible thing. And we're just starting to find out now, uh, you know, where that's going to take us. And I don't think we even started scratching the surface of using all that stuff. But it's fantastic, and it's going to be the future of connectivity. That's how I see it. We will see how it plays out. Brad, thank you for hosting us today. Thank you to the audience for being here. Thanks to the IEEE for enabling this uh, webinar series in 2022. Um, I'm going to hand it back to Brad Closer. You're muted, Brad. Brad, you got to unmute. Uh, yeah, still doing that. Uh, <laughs> Three years into the pandemic, and you're still doing it. Okay. Uh, th thanks to all of you, uh, the panelists, uh, for and, and to the audience uh, for tuning in. Uh, and uh, especially, I would like to thank you, David, for uh, hosting and moderating all four of these uh, series. Uh, I think it has been a, a fantastic conversation uh, from part one to part four. Uh, in, including today's, of course, um, and uh, and I really appreciate it. Um, uh, if um, anyone in the audience missed any of the first three uh, panels that predated this one, 
You can find the links in the description field just below uh, me right now. Uh, and you can go and watch those on demand. This one will also be available on demand uh, right here on LinkedIn. Uh, and if you would like to learn more about uh, 5G or Wi-Fi or CBRS uh, and how these technologies could transform industry and society, please visit us, uh, visit us at our website, futurenetworks.ieee.org. Uh, and that's all. Thank you very much and have a great day. Thanks to the panelists. Thanks, everyone. Appreciate you being here. Thanks, everyone. Great to Thanks, be everybody. Here. Appreciate right. it.